Well, good morning, Granville Chapel. It is good to see some of you here this morning. Oh, that felt good to say. <laughs> um, and we are, of course, very happy that some of us are here in the building and able to hear each other singing, uh, and that is a great joy. So this is what I have one of those sorry, not sorry moments, because my sermon this morning is about lament. Uh, so I have to be, I feel like I have to be a party pooper this morning. Um, but, you know, as Rhonda said, it's been a very difficult summer, and spring, and winter, and fall, and summer, and spring. And if I'm being honest, it wasn't a great winter either. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I felt that we should actually talk about that a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to dive right in. Uh, if you have your Bibles or an app on your phone, you can follow along in Psalm 126. Now, Psalm 126 is part of a small collection in the book of Psalms called the Songs of Ascents. Fifteen Psalms have this running title from 120 to 134. And most scholars agree that these were probably sung while pilgrims traveled to the temple in Jerusalem, going up the hill that's called Mount Zion, going into the gate, and then ascending to the highest point where the temple is. And there are references to exactly that throughout the series. For example, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of Yahweh. So these are the songs of ascents. They're pilgrim songs, sung by people who are on the way to meet with God, but who aren't there yet. The songs of ascents actually have a few of our favorite lyrics. I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Psalm 127. How good and pleasing it is when kindred live together in unity. Psalm 133. The series starts in lament, deep lament, expressing woe and grief at being surrounded by liars and warmongers. And it ends in worship at the temple itself with praise and blessing in the holy place. And as you read, you discover that the path from one to the other doesn't go in a straight line. It twists and it turns bringing all kinds of emotional shifts from the valleys to the heights. These are the songs of ascents, of going up. But even towards the end, Psalm 130 starts, Out of the depth I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. So these are the songs of people who are sure of where they're going and what they hope for but who also know where they are now and what they're living. 
So grief and joy, guilt and assurance, anger and confidence, these are all part of the journey towards God. Psalm 126 is actually a tough little psalm to pin down. Uh, You might not think so right away. It begins by remembering God's blessing and the people's joy. When Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Which is to say that they were like the prophets who have dreams and visions and then proclaim God's revelation. This is what dreams always seem to be about in the Bible when they come up. So one possible reading of this line is that they were close to God, they heard his voice, and they dreamed his dreams. When Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. They proclaimed, they laughed, they shouted for joy, and it was recognized throughout the world. But what sounds at first like a song of thanksgiving turns out to be a cry for help. Restore our fortunes, Yahweh, like the water courses in the Negev. The past tense of God's blessing is now the future tense of what people long for. As you restored us before, restore us again. Which means that the present in which the psalm lives is a time of barrenness, of dryness, when there is no prophecy or laughter or joy. The Negev is the driest, most barren part of the land that has to be refreshed by yearly rainfall. The water comes down and it runs in streams, and without those streams, life could not exist. When the water evaporates, it leaves its mark. It cuts a channel in the ground and it leaves behind evidence of its flow, the water course. Water leaves its mark, but it isn't always there. And likewise, God's life-giving nourishment comes and leaves its mark on us, but it doesn't always seem like it's there. We exist, after all, we're alive, and this is evidence enough that God creates and sustains us. But still, life gets dry. And when we find ourselves in that season, when it seems like God has taken away what gave us life, we cry out, restore us, Yahweh, like springs in the desert. Psalm 126 lives in the valley, not on the heights. It's looking back on a time of joy and trusting that the one who helped them before will help them again. But even in the trust, as I read this psalm, I can see how it's meant to be sung in the valley. This is a psalm of lament, although it might not seem so at first. 
a communal lament, to be precise. It's a song of we, not just I. And maybe that's what keeps it from reaching the full depth of despair that we see in other lament songs. Community, fellowship, relationship dulls the edge of grief. And maybe that's because grief is, at least partly, unrequited love, incomplete love, unfulfilled love. Someone has died. Someone has rejected us. Something we wanted is denied. Something we had is taken away. And sorrow steps in to fill the void. Love is meant to be a cycle of reciprocity, giving and receiving. But when the who or what we love is gone, maybe suddenly and tragically, the cycle can't complete and love stops being whole. It stops coming back to us. And it's unrequited, incomplete, unfulfilled. And I think community dulls the edge because it reminds us that love can still exist as something whole, not something broken. There are still people we can love and who can love us. As I've struggled myself with depression, one of the only things that's ever helped has, in fact, been friendship. The thing about depression is that it makes you feel totally alone, and even that you deserve to be. It's not always triggered by anything. You just feel yourself going down slowly at first and then faster and faster, and it seems like nothing will stop it. There's literally a sensation of moving downwards somewhere in your chest. Some people compare it to drowning. But the other thing about depression is that as overwhelming as it feels, sometimes the smallest things can make it bearable. The image I like to use is that you're being dragged down by a giant whirlpool, and then someone tosses you one of those tiny yellow cords, you know, the kind they use to mark lanes in swimming pools. And you'd think those wouldn't really help, but at least in this metaphor, at least, it turns out that they can. We talk a lot about community in church, and we should. We rarely talk about lament. Sometimes I have a sense that there's this expectation, this unspoken expectation sometimes. If you're a Christian, then you should be a person of joy all the time. Because you're told you should be full of love. So naturally, you should always be smiling. And if you're smiling, then there must not be anything wrong. When I was told that I could pick any psalm I wanted out of all 150, I knew instantly that I wanted to talk about lament. I could have picked any number of lament psalms. There isn't a shortage of them. The intense longing for God in Psalm 42. The absolute pit of despair in Psalm 88. The persistent question of how long, O Lord, in Psalm 13. But I chose 126, and I chose it precisely because of the image with which it ends. 
May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Praise often comes in at the end of a lament psalm. They can be bleak and despairing, but they usually transition to a statement of confidence in God's goodness. Sometimes that transition is more awkward than others. Uh, It's part of what some teach as the literary pattern of a lament psalm. And it's often taught to me as the right way to lament, that it's proper and pious to grieve for a little about whatever is making you sad, and then shove it aside and replace it with praise. That joy is a practice to be cultivated even when you feel anything but joyful. But when I read this psalm, I get a very different picture of the relationship between sorrow and joy. We say that you can't lament unless you end with praise, or at least some do. What if it's the other way around? What if you can't praise unless you first lament? May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Another translation makes that line declarative. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joy. And that became an important line for me in the early days of lockdown. I found myself drawn to the idea, not just of sowing seeds while you wept, but of sowing the tears themselves. The psalm associates weeping with sowing seeds and joy with reaping the harvest. And I think that imagery has implications for how we deal with the grief and sorrow that inevitably comes during the pilgrim journey with God. If you want to reap a harvest, what do you have to do? Sow. And if you want to shout with joy, what do you have to do? Weep. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, we find a list of what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And joy is on that list. I find it interesting that he thinks of joy as a fruit, not a practice that's forced by the power of positive thinking. And I do get that treating things like depression is about breaking negative patterns of thought and getting you to see things in a different way. But what I want us to take away is that joy is a gift that is given to us. It's not something we just grow on our own. Psalm 126 lives in the valley. It's sung in a season when the watercourse is dry and we wonder how much longer life can possibly go on. And these are the kinds of songs the Bible gives us to sing, songs that ask us to sow our tears before God, not just try to wipe them away and hope he doesn't notice that our eyes are red. Walter Brueggemann says in his commentary, the presupposition and affirmation of these psalms 
is that precisely in such deathly places, new life is given by God. We do not understand how that could be so, or even why it is so, but we regularly learn and discern that there, more than anywhere else, newness that is not of our own making breaks upon us. Paradoxically, it is the Psalms that cry out in sorrow that can bring hope. And they do it by telling the truth about how our life is really going. A confession. Another reason I wanted to talk about a lament psalm is because I wasn't entirely sure that anyone else would. I like talking about the parts of the Bible that no one seems to want to talk about. Uh, And this seems to track with the rest of our culture. We've all heard the line, if it feels good, do it. I think we could also say, if it feels bad, pretend it doesn't exist. Despite the growing conversation around mental health awareness, we still make sure that our social media projects the image of confidence, happiness, and security. I actually noticed a few weeks ago that when Zoom gives you options for using reaction emojis, you all know what Zoom is, right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) When Zoom gives you the options for using reaction emojis, it emphasizes the positive ones the thumbs up, the laugh, the party horn to celebrate good news. I actually made the mistake of assuming, while I was writing this sermon, uh, that the sad emoji or the angry emoji weren't there at all. But I checked, and it turns out they are there, but it's not immediately apparent. Then this platform, which is meant to connect people during a major world crisis, has made it a couple steps more difficult to connect with someone's pain or grief or anger. I suspect that this non-acknowledgement, this burial of pain, can often make our pain incoherent. When we find ourselves in dark places, overwhelmed by sorrow, we don't know what to do with it or how to put it into words. And I'm sure that if you're anything like me, the stress and pressure of keeping up the appearance of happiness only weighs you down even more. A friend invited me over for dinner one night uh, with her and her husband. This is someone who's always been gentle and kind and who knew that I was struggling. So they invited me over for dinner. We started talking and chatting and catching up. And then she asked, so what's wrong, Stephen? And I couldn't say a word. It was like my mouth stopped working. This was a person I wanted to talk to, who I knew I could trust and who I knew I didn't have to perform for. And I couldn't talk at all. But because this is a person full of grace and wisdom, she didn't push me. We had dinner, we lingered at the table, sat in the living room, and eventually I was able to talk about what I was feeling. 
Now, I'm aware that a sermon on lament can sound dangerously like a war on happiness. Uh, I promise, the last thing I ever want to do is wallow in misery to get sucked down to the bottom of that whirlpool and stay there. No one does. And fortunately, we don't have to. We've been thrown a rope to grab hold of. We have the gift of the psalms of lament. These are the songs that give us words and language to bring an expression to our struggle. And in that expression, we might find our struggles eased, even if they don't go away completely. The songs of ascents show us that people can walk in faithfulness and trust and still not always be happy with what they're walking through. Sometimes they need, as Psalm 126 says, to sow their tears and hopefully reap some joy. So how do we sow our tears? Well, that becomes the question. Now, we've probably all heard by now of resources for grappling with depression and grief. These are easy to find. People do want to talk about these things now. All it took was a global crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen for generations, but at least we're starting to talk about it. For now, though, I'll just share a few thoughts, things that I've discovered and things I think might help us to notice as we walk through valleys and high places. And the first is this. Let yourself feel what you're going to feel and name what you're feeling. Contrary to popular belief, Christians are just like everyone else. We feel everything. And we're just going to have to learn that maybe we can manage our emotions, we can calm our emotions, but we can't just magic them away. Something I did recently was to print out what's called a feelings wheel. If you've never seen one, you can go online, you can find one. Uh, it arranges all the words we have for all the emotions that we feel. The first time I saw one, I realized I knew all those words, but I never really connected them together. I had never looked at them all in a list, and this is you know, in a nice circular pattern. Uh, I'd never, I'd never seen that before. So I printed it out and I stuck it in my journal. So when I have to write how I feel about something, I have a way to find a word and actually express what I'm going through. The second is this. Don't mistake sadness for not having hope. Now that can be quite a tightrope to walk. Sadness truly doesn't make it easy to find hope. But not only is it possible, I might even venture to suggest that it's necessary. Because by definition, hope is recognizing that things are not the way they should be. And choosing to trust that something better is possible and that someone is making all things new. 
if you always believe that everything's just fine, nothing's wrong at all, then you have no reason to hope for anything or even to trust God. Why would we trust God? We don't need him. You remember the movie Inside Out? The story of a young girl who begins her journey to emotional maturity when she learns how to feel two things at once. Joy and sadness, not just one or the other. Psalm 126 is exactly that. It can picture the joy and know the life-giving fullness of before, but it tastes the sadness and emptiness of right now. The entire Songs of Ascents are about knowing both where we're going and where we are now, and holding both of those things together. Practicing lament might look to some like lacking faith. But in fact, it's the opposite. It's trusting God with everything about our lives. Andy spoke last week from Psalm 25 about being honest with God, trusting that he's not just waiting for us at the end of the journey, but that he's here now, where we are in the valley even as we carry our grief with us. And we do carry it. Grief isn't something we're completely healed from. It marks us, just like the watercourse in the desert. We are going to have to sow our tears over and over again before this pilgrimage is done. And finally, the most important tool that we have, I think, for sowing our tears is these songs of lament that we've inherited as the people of God. David Taylor, a theologian and professor at Fuller Seminary, uh, writes in his book, Open and Unafraid, of the help that these psalms gave and still give after he and his wife suffered their second miscarriage. They'd wanted five children but now two of them had died. So he writes, there are still days when the pain feels almost unbearable. Neither of us is getting younger. Our parents are growing older. Our friends' children are reaching their college years. And the train, so it feels, is passing us by. What we needed then was language to say out loud what our hearts can only grasp at with inarticulate groans. What we needed quite desperately was a community to bear witness to our sadness. Above all, what we needed was to know that God can handle our broken hearts and our raging words of protest. This is what the Psalms would offer us then and now. Here are prayers of lament that furnish us with language for the seemingly unspeakable. Here are songs to name the sorrow in the company of the faithful, in the company of the faithful. 
Here are poems that give coherent shape to our incoherent feelings in the presence of our maker, who has, it often feels, seemingly abandoned us to our inconsolable pain. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. Psalm 5. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Psalm 25. What the lament psalms have offered us in our hour of need, they offer to all who find themselves in need. Edited language to give expression to our unedited emotions. Lament psalms are not merely sadness. They're sadness before God, brought to God instead of hidden from him and from others and from ourselves. Ultimately, we sow our tears in front of the God who Isaiah calls a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That alone is an invitation to not withhold what we're going through. We have to be willing to handle those tears, to plant them in God's soil. Because once upon a time, God created us out of his earth. As we remember that act of goodness and life-giving mercy, we plant our grief in his earth so that God might again create new life out of what feels so much like death. Would you pray with me? O oh God, almighty and merciful, you heal the brokenhearted and turn the sadness of the sorrowful to joy. Let your fatherly goodness be upon all whom you have made. We hold up all our weakness to your strength, our failure to your faithfulness, our sinfulness to your perfection, our loneliness to your compassion, our pain to your great agony on the cross. Take our tears, we pray and grow them into the fruit of your spirit. And from now until the day we enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise, may we always feel your presence in the heights and in the valleys of this road. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, having heard a psalm and read a psalm and spoke, taught about a psalm, I think it's good to sing a psalm. <laughs> uh, and there is a version of Psalm 126 that I've come to know and love and appreciate in this very difficult season of life. Uh, and I asked David if he would lead us in it. So we will sing Psalm 126 together.